Good morning. So glad you're here. Uh, before we begin a look at the scriptures, I just want to uh, encourage some of you who may have uh, children who you think may be preparing or ready to be baptized. If that's the case, uh, you're invited to come following the service to go with us upstairs to the uh, library. Uh, no commitment is needed to just come and find out about it. It's a time to learn uh, very briefly about the significance of baptism in the life of a believer. And then next week we will have our baptism. I also say that next week uh, those who will be uh, baptized will first come to our service here next week and we will introduce them to you and pray for them. We think that's important because a lot of people don't go to a baptism, but it's important to know who these people are because, um, to be quite honest with you, uh, there are a few events that are life, in our life that are more significant than a baptism. So that's why we want to give it that special place that I think the Lord would have for baptism in the life of a believer. We're in this series, How Then Shall We Live? What a great question. I ask myself that question all the time. So, how am I supposed to live in the world in which we find ourselves? And to do that, we need wisdom. Wisdom for Christians living in distressed times. That's what James is doing. Writing to Christians, uh, then and now, on the kind of wisdom we need to live in days like our own. Um, our thought this morning is triumph of the steadfast. James has been talking about uh, how we are to be steadfast in our faith. How we are to count it all joy in the midst of our difficulties. Because God is working in us and through us in these times to produce steadfastness. How to persevere. How to grow spiritually. To do that, he also said we are to have wisdom. Wisdom from God. How to work and live through those days. And now he comes to, I think, a very, very wonderful section. A necessary section that follows. Uh, to talk about triumph. Triumph of the steadfast. Some of you have been in difficult Seasons of adversity before. Maybe you're in one even now. And there is reason for hope. And James reminds us. That the steadfast. Will ultimately triumph. And he begins this section we're going to look at. James 1, 12 through 15. Or yes. Um, he begins this section by pronouncing. A. Blessing on those whose faith has persevered. This morning, if your faith has persevered through your difficult times, then James is speaking to you. He's pronouncing a blessing on us. And this is what he has to say in the verses we'll be looking at. I encourage you to look in your own Bible or your electronic device or look up here. Here's what he has to say after preparing us to go through trials. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, our perspective of God and our trials is shaped and formed by our theology. We all have a theology. The question is, is it biblical? And that's why we must have an adequate and appropriate view of God if we are to live as he desires. Especially when we're going through trials and faced temptations. Let me explain. If we aren't certain of God's sovereign rule over everything, I mean everything, then we will think we are victims of random chance. If we aren't convinced of God's holiness, we will question whether there is any good purpose for our life or any of the trials we're going through. So our notion of God is important. That's the most important thing about us, is what you believe to be true about God. And our view of God's holy character influences our understanding about everything, especially sin. give you an example. In the opera Norma, and I'm not a big opera fan by the way, but I did go to this one, composed in 1830 by Vincero Bellini, two lovers were caught in a moral dilemma. They each had conflicting views about God and sin. This is a fictional story, but it was staged in Gaul during the Roman occupation in the year 50 BC. And in the first act, a Roman proconsul attempted to allure his best friend's wife to run away with him. With ambivalence, the two lovers stood contemplating their moral dilemma. Norma, this one on the red, torn by her human desire and yet also the fear of the gods, she sang out, how could I betray my gods? See, she believed her infidelity would be an offense to her gods. The man, however, the proconsul, um, who was already married, 
rejected, opposed her belief in the gods because he had other things on his mind. Uh, Like her, of course. And he sang at the top of his melodic voice. I'm not going to try to do that. But this guy had a booming voice. How could the gods who gave us love deny us to share our love? Wow, is that an old line you've heard before? They've been singing this song for a long time. You see, he blamed the gods for creating them with burning passion, but prohibiting them from fully expressing it. In essence, this man was asking, how could the gods sort of wind us up and then let us not go? You see, the tension of forbidding lust and bad theology in this opera were front and center. Now the woman, Norma, finally abandoned her resolve. She yielded to her runaway desire and her persistent suitor. She ultimately decided that her lust couldn't be that bad if she had such overwhelming feelings of love. We've heard this story before. But in the final scene, there unrequited lust resulted in tragedy and what? Death. The opera is another example of what Romans 3.23 says. That the wages of sin is death. Ever since Adam's sin in the garden... God has been unjustly blamed for everything, especially creating humanity with powerful drives and then forbidding them from full, unfettered expression of these desires. We have the first example of in the garden the crafty serpent. Accused God of prohibiting Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because God didn't want to have a rival. Really. And Eve stood nervously before the Lord, blaming him for creating Lucifer. And then there's Adam. He self-consciously Wearing his hastily made fig leaf underwear. And he's blaming God for the wife that he gave him. You see, there's a strong tendency that in our trials and temptations to question God, his character. And blame him for all the things that trouble us. Humanity has not changed since the very beginning. What we believe to be true about God 
eventually will be tested and tried in the laboratory of adversity. Since trials inevitably come and befall us and temptations are continually surrounding us, we need to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but what? But deliver us from evil. So James wrote this letter to his Jewish Christian parishioners to encourage them. To encourage them to persevere in their trials, in their tests, and in their temptations. He exhorted them to make a decisive, clear decision to trust the Lord no matter what. He's calling for a verdict. They were to consider that had God that God had good reasons for their trials, even if they didn't know what they were. Therefore, they were to count their trials as a reason for joy. Why? Because God was using their trials to produce in them perseverance and spiritual maturity. They needed to see their human predicament through the eyes of heaven. And to do this, they were exhorted to pray. To pray for God's wisdom. How to see what we're going through. And what to do going through these difficult times. So James is laying out what is very needed today in the church. Is a theology of suffering. That's not one that we're used to hearing about. It's the theology of success and prosperity. It's the, the, the doctrines of uh, all about us. But James is concerned about the difficulties we face. At the heart of their battle of these early Christians was their adequacy of their faith in God. Was it adequate to get them through? Was it an appropriate view? So James now gives us a further incentive to be steadfast, which means to persevere, and be hopeful in our trials. A message I need to hear. Here's his first exhortation, blessing, and promise. Here's the thought. The steadfast will be rewarded for remaining under trials. There's an incentive for you. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive The crown of life, which God has promised to who? To those who love him. Let's take a look at what does James mean here? 
James is making it clear that the steadfast aren't cursed, but they're blessed. You see, trials, difficulties, adversity, hardship tend to make us think for some reason we've been cursed by God. Maybe for some known or unknown sin in our past, sort of a spiritual karma. But James' blessing pronounced on these suffering saints is similar to what Jesus taught and made in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think James is also giving us thoughts from his half-brother from Matthew 24. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. James is not suggesting that those who persevere will be saved because they endured, but they will be saved because they were saved and will endure. Those who are saved will endure. The greatest example of perseverance by faith is none other than the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. If anyone can empathize with us, going through the agony of a trial, it is he. He empathizes with us. He understands the dimension of suffering and pain, of rejection, of uncertainty. Now the steadfast are identified for us as those who have remained under their trials. When the pressure was on, they didn't leave. But what did they do? They stood up underneath it. That's how you grow, is not to flee from pressure, but to remain under it by faith in the power of God. These are the ones who held on to their faith and moved through their toughest crisis. They believed God was in full control and was using their adversity for purposes known maybe only to him. How many of us really know why we're going through the situations we're going through? We could look for solutions, but oftentimes things come into our life that we don't know why. But when you hang on, you persevere, you're steadfast in your faith in God, that, my friends, is being steadfast. To these, the Lord makes this incredible, amazing promise. The steadfast will receive the crown of life. The triumph of the steadfast. This crown is not a reward for any human merit or works or accomplishments, but it is 
unmerited reward won for us by Christ. He did the work. We receive the blessing. The crown, therefore, is a meaningful symbol of God's sovereign grace. The Lord promised that those who persevere will receive the crown, and they will receive it when they see Christ. He will personally greet them, greet us. That's ahead. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. And I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then he will honor the poor in spirit. The peacemakers. The persecuted and those who suffered for righteousness sake by placing a crown. A crown of pure gold. The crown of life on their heads. He who wore a crown of thorns in death will place a gold crown of life on the heads of those who persevered by faith through their trials and temptations. It will be worth it all someday. The New Testament mentions five crowns that will be given to the saints. It's another way of explaining God's grace. For us, there is first the crown, this crown of imperishable worth. It's not a, a, a reward for any of our works, but this imperishable crown he talks about has imperishable worth. It's not my worth that's being crowned for being so worthy. It's Christ is putting his worth on you. That's the crown that's spoken about in 1 Corinthians. Then there's a crown of righteousness. It's not a crown for how good you were, how righteous you were, but it is Christ's righteousness Put on you. His perfect righteousness is imputed to you, is given to you. There's a crown of rejoicing. It's not a crown of how well you could rejoice through life, but it's what we will do in Christ's presence. There's the crown of glory. It's not a crown we receive because of how glorious we were. But it is the unfathomable glory of Christ that's awaiting us. His glory as well is given to us. 
And then there is this crown of life that Jane mentions. It's not a crown for the way we lived our life, but it's the life Christ gives us and will give us forever. Someday there will no longer be any tears, pain, suffering, disease, sin, or death. It's all gone. Each of these crowns await the steadfast because of Christ's merit and works. It's all about Him. When we are face to face with Christ, we will openly admit that we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. And those of us who love him will receive the crown of life. What a day that's going to be. When we're all gathered together before our Savior. On that day, as I read the scriptures, we will fall down before him. Worshiping him who lives forever and forever. And then it says all the saints will cast their imperishable crowns at his feet. And we will declare together, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things. You see, that's enough incentive to take us through all our trials for the rest of our lives. Now, the next three verses are an important part of the theology of suffering, of temptation. And it identifies the steadfast as those who persevered going through their battle with sin. And it is a battle. Who are these steadfast? The steadfast are those who did not blame God when tempted. Important theological truth, the Lord is not the author of sin. And he tempts No one to sin. He writes, let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. He says, because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Pretty clear. Our trials not only can produce greater faith, as he's spoken about, but they can also leave us vulnerable To temptation. The temptation to yield to lust, doubt, bitterness, blame, blaming God for our plight and predicament. When tempted, we can count it all joy, or we can try to distance ourselves from God. Will we persevere? Or will we abandon the love and the grace 
of Christ. We sang earlier, I'm prone to wander, Lord. And we tend to wander most under test, under pressure. The choice you make between persevering or abandoning is ours. What will it be? Sadly, many have attempted to run from God when they have sinned, as if they could actually hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing God. Well, I could tell you, it never has worked and never will. He is what's referred to as the persistent hound from heaven. He will track us down in our dark hiding place and he will reach down with his hands of grace and mercy and offer to pull us up. What kind of a God would actually do that when we have abandoned him and blame him? Only our God would do that. The God of the Bible. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The beloved Son of God who died in our place. And the Holy Spirit who is our convictor and our comforter. Jesus next explains why God is not to be blamed for our our temptations. We've already alluded to God cannot be blamed because God cannot be tempted to do evil because he's infinitely holy. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. We all fall into various forms of temptation. We can be tempted in heavy ordeals of suffering, distress, and strain. We can also be enticed and allured to sin. But God is impervious to the temptation of sin. When people say nothing is impossible for God, we need to clarify that. If you say that, then clarify it. What we mean by that is he can do all things consistent with his holy nature and his divine purpose. But it is impossible for God to sin because he has no capacity within him or even a desire for sin in his nature. It's just not there. God, therefore, cannot lie. He cannot change because he's immutably holy, forever holy, infinitely so. Actually, Not only does God have no capacity to sin, but sin is anathema to his very nature. He shakes. He trembles with holy wrath at even the thought or the sight of sin. That's how holy he is. Habakkuk 1.13 speaks of the Lord's holiness. It says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. And cannot even look on wickedness. So how does he look on me? Do you have any evil thoughts? 
Have you ever done anything evil? Yes. So how could he ever look at me? Because of Christ. Nothing God permits or designs to enter our lives comes from any evil intent or purpose in him. That's because God is infinitely good. Therefore, whatever he chooses to do or not do, he does for his glory and what? Our good. And you can bank on that. You can count on that. If God can mean, cannot be tempted, likewise, he will never tempt anyone to sin. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Our trials, however, are never motivated or intended by God to tempt anyone to sin. Many ways he doesn't have to. <laughs> because there's the world, there's Satan, and there is our flesh. The Lord does, however, test our faith. He does it to prove his faithfulness and to expose our weaknesses and show our need for his grace. And that's to be expected. Therefore, before we blame God, God for our predicament. We need to remember he never tempts us to sin. He's not the author of sin. However, he uses all things. Hear me clearly. He uses all things, even the evil choices of both good and evil men and angels, put Satan in there as well, to accomplish his good purposes. That's a sovereign God. Let me give you an example. It's a good one. David was moved, it says, by God to sin when he numbered Israel and Judah. So, how can that be? The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. He moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. That sounds like God... Enticed, persuaded David to sin. However, you must read 1 Chronicles 21. That adds a very important insight to this event. Notice what it says here. This is the same event. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So which was it? This is the explanation. God used even Satan's motivation, enticement of David to accomplish his purpose of bringing judgment and punishment upon Israel for its sin. Therefore, God in his good providence, he works all things together for our good and his glory by using not only our trials But listen to this, but even Satan's temptations to accomplish his eternal purposes. 
If you don't mind a minute, let me give you a couple examples of people I've met in my ministry over the years. Uh, anonymous, of course. Who blame God for their sin. A woman once urged me and argued with me that it must be God's will for her to commit adultery because the man she was involved with was such a fine Christian man. He was also unhappily married. Poor boy. And they were both convinced that God brought them together. They deceived themselves thinking, how can this be wrong when they are both praying and reading the Bible together? You know what I call that? Self-deception. I've known well-intentioned church dragons who legitimized their gossip and their slander because they were on some kind of a holy campaign to right injustice. As if the means is worth the cost. I had a parishioner once who claimed he never had been closer to God than when he was caught with a stash of drugs and as a consequence tore his family apart to this day. He's miserable. And at the time he told me, this must be God's will, Pastor, because I've never felt so liberated and uh, my devotionals have been so good lately. Really? These are examples of what I call sin self-deception. This is a takeaway for this morning. This is a principle of sin. I've had to accept this for myself. Sin is actually illogical and irrational. So if the sin you face begins to seem logical and rational, flee. Don't buy the lie. When you can convince yourself that sin is logical, and it's rational that I should be able to do that, that's when you know you're in dangerous territory. The steadfast did not yield to the lure of their desires. He said, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by who? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation to sin doesn't come from God, but from our own sinful desires. Satan tempts us, the world tempts us, but if those two were not there, we would be back in the Garden of Eden, and we would still be facing what Adam and Eve did. It's us, our own desires. The heart of the natural man, the man without Christ, is filled with insanity and desperately wicked, says the Bible. 
From the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. And the list just keeps going. Even when we attempt to do good, we must be careful because the good we may attempt can unexpectedly trap us into sin. We cling to 1 Corinthians 10. I sure do. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. If you are beginning to think that sin looks logical and rational, he will give you a way of escape. (laughs) Got to listen to that. Temptation to sin doesn't come from him. We are enticed to sin when our flesh is drawn away by our desires. James describes what happens when we sin. First, he says we're carried away. Carried away by our desire, our lust. Our lust, what we mean by that is a consuming fleshly passion. We're like fish. Tempted by the shiny lure on a hook dangling before our eyes. And the lust of the flesh excites our eyes eyes to search for what the flesh desires. Then the pride of life takes over. It convinces us that it is logical, it's rational, that we deserve it, of course. Because, you know, he doesn't have a good marriage. Because no one will find out. Because this and that and whatever. That's why James later will warn the Christians in this book. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. The warning is to those who see a flashing baited hook. When you see that, don't even come up and go, I wonder if it's shrimp, cheese. What, what is that smell? Don't even hang around the bait. Sometimes an unsuspecting fish who hangs around the lure long enough can be snagged by a cunning fisherman because he's in the vicinity. (laughs) So the warning is to those who see a flashy baited hook, don't even sniff or nibble at it. So when there is bait in the water, turn tail. And swim away as fast as you can. Second, he says, our desire gives birth to sin. We've talked about that. When we give in to dangerous passions, we get hooked on sin. Sin can become an addiction to many different things. 
Sin inevitably seeks to enslave us to our sinful desires. And that's the worst kind of imprisonment. What may look like will give you freedom will actually become a reason for imprisonment. And third, and when sin is born, it brings forth death. If we are reeled in by our desires, destruction, enslavement, and death are sure to follow. And when that happens, we become a a stuffed trophy over Satan's mantle. Proverbs 14, 12 warns us, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Even though sin looks attractive, it leads to spiritual, emotional, relational, and even physical death. Sin deceives, then defiles, and then demeans. I'm going to conclude with an example. If you could see that well. At the times James wrote his letter, the Romans were trying to appease their many fickle gods. They were mythical. They were gods who were not infinitely good. Arbitrary. And in particular, they feared some very strange mythical creatures called sirens. They looked like birds... I don't know if you could see that there. They looked like birds, but had faces and voices of beautiful maidens, girls, ladies. The sirens were doomed by the gods to exile on a dangerous, rocky island in the sea. So embittered by the judgment of the gods, the sirens allured unsuspecting ships loaded with sailors to their perilous shores because... They despise human freedom. These sailors were spellbound when they heard these beautiful, soft-spoken, seductive voices beckoning them to their shore. Shipwreck and death inevitably waited those who yielded to their cry. Now the wise sailors had learned That there was danger. They knew they were vulnerable to their own desires. They were vulnerable to the soothing voice of the sirens. So you know what they did? They filled their ears with wax. And they bound themselves to the mast. They understood their desires. Brothers and sisters, we need to put wax on our ears. When you hear things that are enticing you. We need to bind ourselves to the cross. And we need to set our sails for the shores of heaven. Where the crown of life awaits us. If you are here this morning... And have been listening to the alluring voice of your own desire. Or sirens. Ask God to give you the courage and the faith. To swim away as fast as you can. 
from your temptation. Now remember this. In the end, the steadfast will triumph and they will receive the crown of life. Once again, sin is very deceptive. And so is our nature. Sin is illogical and irrational. So if the sin you face begins to seem logical and rational, flee. Don't buy the lie. Thanks, James. I appreciate that. I think we all need to be careful of our lives. But remember this, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape. There is a way of escape. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, for the crown of life that is promised to those who persevere. Lord, we know that we are unworthy, undeserving of these incredible rewards that await us. But Lord, we do know that it is only made possible by your love, your grace, that we could ever wear the crown of life. For those who are here this morning, Lord, who have been through the battle, fighting off these allurements, these enticements, from within as well as without. Lord, help us to understand your sovereign grace, your infinite grace that is far greater than any of our sins. Lord, may we sense that we are your blessed people and that what we may be going through isn't because of a curse. It's because you have reasons and purposes and we live in a world that's falling. Help us to turn our eyes to heaven and to see ourselves and our lives through your eyes, the eyes of Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.